Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Voices from 2020, an audio program powered by Stranova, exploring strategic reflections on our business present from the perspective of the future, and featuring your hosts, Bill Veltrup and Firehawk. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Voices from 2020. Welcome to the third podcast in the Voices from 2020 series. I'm Firehawk, and I'd like to help you get ready to travel to the year 2020. As many of you suspect, there are an infinite number of possible futures. Whether our collective future is wondrous or disastrous will be importantly influenced by the choices we make as human beings. Bill Veltrub and I are convinced that we as a species have been grossly underestimating our capacity to choose a future that works for all. We've decided to pursue a path forward that we hope will help us collectively envision and move towards our ideal future. To move towards wholeness, in other words. Well, here's what we've done so far. Our first stop was to petition the Guild of Evolutionary Time Travelers, GET, to become licensed to travel to an ideal year 2020. We had to go through a rather extensive and intensive process before we received our provisional license, but we got it. Brad Redderson learned about our achievement and in a typical burst of genius and generosity offered to have his Stranova site host a series of monthly podcasts with Bill and I interviewing selected players from an ideal year 2020. In the first Voices from 2020 podcast, Brad interviewed Bill and I. The big news from that bit of time travel was that the greater San Francisco Bay Area will be hosting the 2020 Infinite Games. Stay tuned to this series to learn more. In the second Voices from 2020 podcast, we interviewed Gil Friend and Jeff Saperstein and saw how their deep commitment to creating regional dashboards played out in an ideal 2020 future. In this month's podcast, we're going to be interviewing Tom Attlee, founder of the nonprofit Co-Intelligence Institute. Tom has written and spoken for 25 years on politics, democracy, and cultural transformation. Recently, his work has focused on conscious evolution and the tools needed for human beings to become a true blessing to the larger body of life. Tom's 2003 book, The Tao of Democracy, using co-intelligence to create a world that works for all, introduced us to what it takes to tap into our capacity for wise democracy. In the coming interview, Tom reveals how in 2020, we have collectively begun to awaken 
not only to face up to our various global challenges, but also to use the energy of collective crisis to fuel our conscious evolution as a people. And now, let's travel together to the year 2020 and listen in on a conversation with Tom Attlee. We start with Tom telling his story about how his life and work developed. I was very much in activist mode. Most of my life was raised in an activist family, and that's the world I come out of, very aware of what's going on in the world and feeling personally involved, responsible, both with the bad and with the potential good visions, and I've just lived my life that way. And I got into working on group and organizational process work in an effort to help progressive groups do better work together and ended up finding that most of my compatriots were then organizational consultants, corporate consultants. But most of the good work that was being done in group and organizational stuff was being done by these consultants. And I learned all about open space technology and learning organizations and set of ideas around the concept of co-intelligence, which is holistic intelligence, focusing mainly on creating a different kind of democracy that was not built out of partisan debate and battle, but was built out of more consensus and self-organization and all of the kinds of things that were currently being used in the corporate world. I was interested in shifting over into how the communities and societies organize themselves. And about that time, I got involved with a fellow named Michael Dowd, who was an evangelical minister, former Christian evangelical minister, who was going around preaching evolution and mm. exciting people about becoming conscious evolution, becoming conscious agents of evolution, to realize that evolution is at a stage where human consciousness is an evolutionary phenomenon, and it is a way to look at it in which we are evolution becoming conscious of itself. We can learn about evolutionary dynamics and actually apply them consciously in a way that evolution has been applying them unconsciously for ages. And everything that I had been doing, all these processes I've been studying, all this democratic vision I've been putting together, basically was creating tools so that we could become more conscious and evolve more consciously and evolve evolve individually, evolve relationally, organizationally, evolve our social systems more consciously, and suddenly my activism turned inside out, and it became what I'm doing is trying to help the world wake up to the possibility of conscious evolution. So the idea of a spiritually-based movement where people are connected to the sacredness of the world as it is the sacredness of the process, the unfolding process evolution, the immensity, the awesome unfolding that's been going on and that is all around us, and that out of that awe and sense of being part of this gigantic story comes this motivation to change the world in positive ways because we are evolution. It's not a matter of changing things from one static thing to another. It's a matter of participating in the unfolding of the universe in a very active, conscious way. Here we are in 2020, and I'd like to paint a, a bit of a word picture of a graph. And the vertical ordinate of the graph has to do with, um, with measuring the well-being of all life on our planet. 
And, you know, as you pointed out, that has been evolving for billions of years, and it has been a progressive upward movement with some pretty severe discontinuities at a few points, but generally a strong upward trend until about the last 50 to 100 years when it has turned sharply downward. And if we were to extrapolate that trend downward, it's going down faster and faster. And let's call that path B. On this graph, I show a path A, which gradually departs from this downward trend and separates from the path B, bottoms out, and then gradually begins to turn up, implying that we have the capacity within life on this planet to continue to evolve as we have during the, the past several billion years. But somehow we had, to, we had to break away from path B. And where we are now in 2020 is we are worse off in terms of the well-being of life overall than we were in 2006. Are you saying we've crossed the tipping point that we are, have a, achieved separation from path B and that there is a potential of bottoming out and uh, taking the upward sweep? Uh, well, I feel like it, and it's been. A, there's also a funny reframing that has happened. Uh, it's like the the fact is, as, as bad as things have gotten, there are a number of times in the history of the planet, like the dinosaur time was one of them. There was a time before the dinosaurs when like 90% of the life on Earth got wiped out. There is an odd way that crises and even catastrophe end up becoming evolutionary boosters. Part of what gives me hope is the, the extent to which people are no longer recoiling from the crises as something that is either overwhelming or that needs to be managed and fixed up, but are sort of, it's like Aikido. They're rolling with that, the motion of the crisis and using it as a, a source of energy for transforming the systems and thought patterns that created the crises in the first place. Can you speak a little bit about some of the more more pivotal things that have happened in the last 14 years that, in the way of changing the rules of the game? Yeah, well, there's the, the rules of investment have been shifting. Uh, some of them by laws, but an awful lot of them by just the culture of what particularly younger generation of investors coming forward and saying, this isn't all about money. You know, this is about the world that we live in. And the money system, unless it's aligned to the welfare of the world we live in, uh, needs to be disciplined. And we who are investing need to demand things like the triple bottom line, things like, you know, we need to have the environment taken into account or we're not going to invest. You know, we need to have the community and the workers taken into account or we're not going to invest. And there was a movement in around the turn of the, uh, of the century that has expanded a lot called total corporate responsibility, which included the triple bottom line. And it went farther than that. It said that corporations need to take responsibility for changing the game in which they're playing. And to the extent the corporations took responsibility, that they use their power 
in the market and the, in the political world and with the, the money and, and people they are working with them. They use that power to help transform the system in ways that govern them towards greater sustainability. Uh, so we had corporations beginning to uh, pass to, to finance campaign finance reform laws. We had car, uh, car businesses, you know, car companies that were, uh, that were trying to get uh, CAFE, you know, the, the fuel efficiency standard laws passed. You know, it was like the different corporations, where we had, we had uh, uh, corporations that were trying to get uh, finance the family farms, you know, again, making sure that the family farms survived. These were large food corporations that were trying to get laws passed that would make it so that if they changed, it was part of a larger change, and everybody else had to change too. And bit by bit, the costs of doing business to the larger world, the costs to the environment, the costs to society, started to get absorbed into the costs of products. And you could really see how much a product cost. And that fed the market with important feedback loops and you know, real information, and the market began to work to heal the planet instead of destroying it. And that's one of the most important things that happened uh, has been the restructuring, and it's still going on. We're just, you know, mm. 10 or 20% of where we have to be. But that's one of the things that gives me faith, because once we start correcting the feedback loops, that becomes a self, uh, self-fulfilling, self self-advancing, uh, self-organizing uh, activity. So the economics of things have started to shift really dramatically. As I listen to you, Tom, the picture I get is a wonderful expansion of what we heard in our last interviews when we were interviewing Jeff Saperstein and Gil Friend. And they described the origins of the, what, what they called the regional dashboard that were evolved along about that time. And you're describing the same phenomena, that basically the most profound shift was we began to really tap into our ways to let more and more people see the whole and to see the relationship between actions and decisions and their consequences. So when you talk about total responsibility, you're talking about being fully responsible for the full ripple effect from corporations. When you talk about total costing, you're talking about really considering the full cost on all of life for whatever it is that you produce. What I'm hearing you describe is that we made breakthroughs in terms of being able to measure and report and talk about, deliberate on that those kinds of feedback loops. There has been a development of localness because localness generates feedback loops that are more quickly observable. Mm-hmm. You know, when you are drinking the water that's coming out of the factory, the feedback loop is really tight. When a politician, a local politician is doing something, the feedback loops are really tight. You know, people see the politician in the grocery store. You know, once you get up to the national and, you know, larger levels or even state levels lots, lots of the time, the feedback loops become more diffuse. It becomes harder to to control them. So having the ability create we become sophisticated at being able to make visible and real and useful to people the feedback information that they need to reflect on. Uh, but a lot of like statistics, people just based on statistics, and now they have you know statistics on large phenomena that are going on that are all tangled up with 
GPS. You can see right, right what's going on in your neighborhood really quickly in GPS. You can develop, you know, see what's happening by playing it out on video games. Uh, lots of scenario kinds of stuff have been developed. But the ability to engage people in ex exciting, engaging ways with uh, dealing with the feedback has been developed simultaneously that, there's, that the local stuff has been developing, particularly when it comes to material things, simultaneously because of the expansion of the net and virtual realities that are being created, etc. People are doing all sorts of things culturally and intellectually, etc., uh, internationally. And there's massive international collaboration, but it's at the immaterial level. And more of the, the material level, I mean, the, the uniqueness of each place is coming more to the fore because things are more local when it comes to the material world. You were also involved in studying the transformation of philanthropy. Could you say a little about that? It was somewhere around 2008, 2012 in there that the... Uh, that there started to be a significant number of philanthropists, and, that, and there were massive transfers of wealth from the, uh, because of the baby boomers uh, coming of age uh, and their parents dying, etc. And the baby boomers had, uh, had some interesting perspectives from the, from the 60s, etc. They began doing different things with their philanthropy. It wasn't just help the suffering people. It wasn't just help the, uh, uh, you know, doing new medical breakthroughs. It was like, Let's, let's actively change the systems. They, there were lots of experimentations, for example, in, uh, in measurements, uh, community health measurements and social health me measurements, what makes for a healthy, decent society, so that you could provide those giant feedback loops. Tremendous new uh, forms of research on process. Uh, a lot of the democratic developments um, that we're beginning to see the results of today the high-quality processes that were sort of at the Kitty Hawk stage at the turn of the century uh, around 2010 began to be serious. Serious research was being done. How do we find out what the deliberative wisdom of the people is instead of public opinion? You know, there's lots of science about public opinion. Mm. But what? how do you find, if you were to actually put together uh, a bunch of people ordinary people and have them generate what is pretty easily recognized as general community wisdom. So people began in investing their money in transforming the world for, for their kids and their kids' kids. Hmm. Uh, that became a central motivation. The kids were major in that. I mean, there were lots of kids. A lot of the changes happened. You know, there were tremendous changes in China, for example. I mean, China's become this gigantic force in the world. And a lot of the uh, environmental initiatives and stuff that have come out of China were because the kids said to the parents uh, who were running China, you can't do this anymore. You know, it's amazing the impact that kids have had in the last 20 years, too. I mean, one of the things that I've heard in your words, Tom, today is a lot of the same concepts that many indigenous Earth peoples had about self-responsibility, about each one being responsible and and needed by the whole tribe and everybody's contribution being uh, very very important and how far we got away from that to where you know you could uh -huh. abdicate that responsibility and seeing that evolution is calling us back to that kind of self-responsibility so I'm doing a lot of inquiries related to the evolutionary work now that are looking for more basic underlying patterns You've heard this phrase, 
where your joy meets the world's need. Mm-hmm. And the sense of need as as a, an analytic sort of thing. You know, a body needs certain things. A mm-hmm. community needs certain things. And then there's the joy, and the joy is an indicator that you're going with the grain. You're following the flow of life energy. And what happens when you are, it's like the internal, external, and Wilbur's quadrants, what happens when you are, when you are seeking? You know, sometimes you're just going to do the thing that's fun, whether it's good for you or not, and other times you're going to discipline yourself, whether it's fun or not. But what if the inquiry we were focusing on was, in every circumstance, what is the sweet spot where joy and capacity meets the need? Mm. And what if that's the way, it's like it, it's, uh, there's a dimension of it, which is self-responsibility. Right. But there's a dimension of it also, which is like social structures, which make it likely and supported to do that. Yeah. It's like the thing in open space, you take responsibility for what you love. Right. What would it be like to start thinking of what kind of society would be organized to meet the needs of the individuals and organizations and communities within it by tapping different forms of joy? Mm. I was involved with daycare many years ago, and somebody came from China. Some woman had come from China who was a daycare uh, administrator, and she said, in six months in China, she never found any crying babies. Hmm. And they had in all of the in all of the uh, daycare things, they had old people, and the old people doted on the babies. Hmm. You know, old people in wheelchairs. They put the babies and the old people together instead of separating them and having to have all these middle-aged people take care of them. <laughs> like the joy of the babies to be with the old people and the joys of the old people being with the baby. You know, it's that kind of hmm. design, thing. and that's. It fits with what you're saying, but it has a different sort of different uh, different spin on it. It's one of my current inquiries. People are listening to this podcast are back in the year 2006. And would you direct people to the website and where they ought to go there to really get a feel for where you were back there relative to this wonderful evolutionary breakthrough? One of my websites was and is co-intelligence.org. Okay. There's also thegreatstory.org, Michael uh, Dowd and Connie Barlow's website, and they're my, my closest colleagues in this uh, the work that I was doing back then. They're the evolutionary evangelists. And if you want to sense what the, the spiritual dimensions of evolution, uh, which had so captivated me, and were the seeds of the movement that has, uh, that has now grown and is the I don't know whether it's the dominant form of spirituality now or not, because it's kind of hard to tell. Cause it's so busy pulling everybody together into these activities, it's, it loses the distinction as something separate. Uh, but that was the seeds were being planted back then were on the, the website, uh, greatstory.org. So how old are you in 2020, Tom? What's your, what, what have you come to in your age? So I'm, I'm uh, 73. 73. So, you know, so one of the things I notice about you in 2020 is your uh, passion and vitality. And um, how have you kept that thread alive in the last 14 years? What is it that's really contributed to the sense of hope that I hear in your voice, you know, even given some of the circumstances which are pretty hard, not easy for many, many, many of the humans on the planet. But how do you, how do you keep that sense of hope 
uh, cooking and and what is it that's fed that over the last 14 years what's funny because for the last 25 years I have been outspoken against either hope or despair Mm. because they feel to me like spectator sports you know it's as if it's going to happen or it's not going to happen and the fact is the only thing that's going to make it happen is what we do so for me the, the the source of energy of life energy is the knowledge that even if there's a slim chance that slim chance has to do with what i do with my day and mm-hmm. how i look at things and the fact that when i do this work the people that i run into are the most amazing people i've ever run into ever and being able to work with those people is incredibly energizing mm. Uh, mm. so it's like i i actually can't imagine any other kind of uh, life that would be more more uh, alive and it's sort of and the challenges just make it that much more exciting if what you're working on is developing uh, the positive possibilities mm. i have no idea actually where they're going to make it i really feel like the kinds of shifts that we've seen make it likely way more likely than it was back from what we could see in 26 but it's it, there's there's absolutely no guarantees and it's the I would, <laughs> I would sort of be sad if everything all got worked out <laughs> and there were no more challenges or crises and everything was you know there were no more problems in life that would be deadly you know this is this is one of the hottest most interesting times we could possibly be alive and whether we succeed or not, we are the evolutionary next step. Uh, you know, it's like evolution is trying this out. Evolution is trying human consciousness out and human tools out and human social organization out and going, does this work? You know, does this approach work? Let's give it a shot. And there's no spectator sport. We are that consciousness. We are those social systems. You know, we, we are the makers of those tools. It's like us doing it is that evolutionary leap. And it's such a gas being part of that process, whether it works or not. For me, it's not getting from A to B. It's getting to a point where you, where you recognize that what's going on is process mm. all the time. You know, it's not how do we get to utopia. Mm-hmm. It's like how do we think and feel and deepen and explore together in ever more interesting ways. You know, and that's never-ending. And we can make it as exciting and interesting as we want, forever. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.